This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hello, this is Russell Moore. You're listening to my podcast, and this is a Cross and the Jukebox episode. We examine uh, music and culture and religion and roots through the grid of country music and some other forms of musical expression from time to time as well. Before we get started, one of the things that really helps is if you like this podcast, if you go review it on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you listen, helps people to to find it. So please do that if you would. Somebody asked me uh, just this past week if I would talk about the song Losing My Religion by R.E.M. because they had heard me talk about it in a sermon that I preached, uh, I don't know, a year or so ago, and because the song had come back up. Uh, in a conversation recently about deconverting Christians, people who had been professing Christians but who have moved away from that into atheism or agnosticism or or just general non-religious affiliation, and the song came up. And uh, this person said, could you, could you talk about that song, Losing My Religion? It's uh, a 1991 uh, song by R.E.M., And of course, usually here we're talking about country music, but I think that this is a really important song culturally in American life that sort of transcends categories. There are a lot of people who know this song uh, who weren't even alive in 1991 and who wouldn't have, have listened to it at the time. But they're familiar with it in pop culture whenever there's um, a story about someone who's moving away from the faith. I remember several years ago having an, an acquaintance of mine that I knew to be a really devout Catholic had put on social media, and something was going on at the Vatican at the time, and I can't remember which uh, controversy that it was, but she put up Uh, a music video of R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion. She had no context to it at all. And uh, I thought, wow, is she walking away from her church? And she clarified a little bit later on social media, no, I'm not leaving my religion. I'm just expressing my grief that I feel like Uh, my religion is falling apart, like my church is falling apart. And so that was the grief that she was feeling, that she was losing her church. So uh, this song, 1991, uh, it's written by uh, Peter Buck, who's a mandolin player, uh, songwriter, musician, and Michael Stipe with R.E.M. is, again, really familiar. That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight, losing my religion, trying to keep up with you. And I don't know if I can do it Oh no, I've said too much. I haven't said enough. Now, REM, for those of you not familiar with REM, coming out of the Athens, Georgia uh, music scene, their, their lyrics were always uh, cryptic to some degree. I mean, uh, maybe sometime we'll talk about uh, Man on the Moon. Uh, I think that'd be a really interesting uh, song to talk about in light of conspiracy theories. So, We'll do that uh, later on. Uh, Or uh, what's the frequency, Kenneth? 
which came out of uh, Dan Rather talking about being mugged and that the mugger was saying to him, what's the frequency, Kenneth? Uh, really kind of a weird uh, thing. And they, they put it into this this song that, uh, what, what what does this even mean? These lyrics are actually, I think, more cryptic than they seem to be. I think there are a lot of people who read them at face value who aren't getting uh, what the song is about. And I even noticed that to reading uh, philosopher Roger Scruton, uh, recently deceased this year, Roger Scruton, um, his book, Gentle Regrets, uh, he writes about teaching uh, a class on philosophy of music. And I mean, Roger Scruton, he's, he was brilliant. I, I really uh, benefited from his work, kind of a snob, you know, and, and I think he would, he would not be offended by that. He, 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 he claimed that snobbishness and thought it was a good thing and sort of rooted in Burkeanism and, and whatever. Uh, but he's talking about in that class, he says this, quote, many songs from my students' high school days were discarded as they climbed the steps of, of the class, meaning in knowledge. But one song had a particular meaning for them. Of course, this was a while ago. He's writing, looking backward and would retain its place in their affections to the very end of the course. It was called Losing My Religion and was sung by Michael Stipe, leader of the group REM. Its confused but poignant words engaged with sentiments that were all but universal in adolescents who had come from small-town America to their cynical classes in sin. For this song was the record of a personal loss, although a loss emptied of its tragic overtones. The bottom had not, after all, fallen out of their world, since what they had taken for the bottom was merely a stage phantom projected by strobe lights on the void. Worlds, the Luciferian pop star says, are bottomless, but you were always falling, but falling forever, in which case you don't really fall, end quote. And later on in this essay, Scruton uh, says uh, he's talking about Psalm 100, and about reading Psalm 100 in the Book of Common Prayer and seeing that as an answer to REM. Because, of course, Psalm 100 is this song of uh, coming before the Lord with joy. Uh, it, is, it is you who made us and not we ourselves. Uh, that, that, uh, that sentiment is behind Psalm 100. And he says, quote, "'Losing my religion is a moan.'" not a song, and the idiom of heavy metal expressly forbids its followers to join in when the music starts, end quote. Okay, Roger Scruton, if you think REM is heavy metal, that's, <laughs> we should introduce you to some heavy metal and you would really, uh, really be uh, surprised. But his, his point is that people were drawn to losing my religion because it expressed their secularization and the sense of loss that comes with secularization. And it's certainly plausible that that's what people find in that song. But American Songwriter Magazine uh, wrote several years ago about how the song is misunderstood as either an attack on Christianity explicitly or as a, uh, a defense of the sort of uh, spiritual but not religious kind of ethos that we have right now with the, uh, for instance, the people who classify themselves as having no religious affiliation, the so-called nuns, N-O-N-E-S. 
they're not necessarily atheists or agnostics, but they want to be spiritual, but they don't want the institutional structure of a church or uh, an organized religion, that this is what the song is about. And there's a plausibility to that uh, to some degree, because John Michael Stipe was from a long line of Methodist ministers and ended up uh, a devotee of a kind of maybe Alan Watts type Zen Buddhism, Americanized uh, Zen Buddhism, maybe close to what some people call mindfulness of that sort of market driven uh, Buddhism and various uh, forms of spirituality in that line. So there's a plausibility to that, but that's not really what the song is about. So American songwriter in talking to Stipe and R.E.M. pointed out that this is an old Southern expression about losing one's temper, about being at the end of one's rope. And that's that's true. That's a common uh, expression uh, that somebody would say something along the lines of, I've been in line here uh, to get my driver's license for an hour and I'm, I'm fixing to lose my religion. Or if she asks me when the babies do one more time when I'm not pregnant, I'm going to lose my religion. You know, th- th- those sorts of things, meaning I, I can't um, I can't keep this sense of politeness or as, as American songwriter puts it, that point where politeness gives way to anger. So uh, their point is that the song is not about religion. It's about Southern culture and uh, human nature. And I don't know. I don't know. As, as somebody who has lived through a spiritual crisis in the South, in the Bible Belt, seeing uh, some racism, seeing some child abuse, seeing some, you know, all sorts of things that went on in the Bible Belt under the, the guise of religion. I, I feared at the time that all there was to my religion might be Southern culture and the human condition, at which point uh, this would not be a religion at all. It would just be an expression of power. And so for a while there, I was in the situation that Walker Percy uh, talks about in Lost in the Cosmos when he says that someone was uh, like a Christian who had lost faith in everything but the fall of man. Uh, that That's a fear about integrity. Does everything hold together? So I actually don't think that these two senses of losing my religion are all that far apart. Because with secularization, I think that there's a myth that secularization is mostly about uh, cognitive ideas or that secularization is mostly about culture wars and I uh, people want to reject uh, uh, Christian theology or Christian morals, and so they rebel against it. That's certainly part of it, and and that certainly ends up to be the case. But often what I find is that secularization is, is not coming usually from that place of bored indifference. It's usually coming from a place of simmering anger. And it's not the kind of anger that I think we, we would want to own as a badge of honor. Because it's often not the anger 
at us because we believe in the supernatural or we believe in transcendent moral norms, but rather an anger uh, that there's a fear that we do not and that there's no integrity there. And that's not a new challenge at all. So when somebody asked me this past week, would you talk about losing my religion? They were referencing um, a sermon that I preached from 2 Kings 20 about the Babylonian envoys who came to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah uh, took them through his uh, storehouses and he showed them all of his treasure, his silver, his gold, his armory, uh, all of his uh, military power. And Isaiah came to him and said, what did, what did you say to these men who came to you from Babylon? What did you show them? And he said, I showed them everything uh, that I had. And Isaiah said, well, ultimately the days are going to come when everything that's been stored up here is going to be carried to Babylon and some of your own sons are going to be taken away. They're going to be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Uh, the, all of this is going to be gone. And then Second King says this, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? Now, you read this, and it might be tempting just to see this as a it's just a bridge section in the history of Israel, moving from um, the security of the kingdom, then the the dividing of the kingdom, and then ultimately the the exile, the carrying away into Babylon. And this is sort of a foreshadowing of that. But there's a lot more going on here. Uh, what you have is the prophet speaking a word to the king. Uh, so the the prophetic uh, word of God. Uh, speaking to the institution, to the king, which is a theme in Scripture that the prophets carried a word with integrity, and the word had the integrity even when the institutions did not. And Hezekiah here is one of the good ones in in terms of kings. It's very difficult to find kings in the Old Testament that you would want to name your children after. There are a couple. Uh, There are a couple. Uh, but not very many. And Hezekiah is on the good end of this. He's he's one of the most commended. But even that, uh, here you have this person who he he tore down the idolatrous high places. He held fast to the Lord. He stood against the Assyrians. But then he did this. And it, it's so important that Isaiah includes almost the exact same thing in Isaiah chapter 39. And the question is, why? Well, he had somebody, King Hezekiah, had been healed of a, uh, of a really uh, uh, perilous illness. He'd been given 15 more years um, as, uh, of life uh, from the Lord. And yet when these Babylonian political figures show up, there's a critical fracture in the integrity of the kingdom. And this is a warning. I mean, there, there's a... There's a, a pull uh, toward disintegration, moral disintegration that you can see, obviously, in Saul. He's not obeying the word of the Lord. He's you know, trying to kill David. He's uh, going and, and uh, doing seances with witches, all, all sorts of things. You can, see the, um, you can see the warning signs in the life of David with Bathsheba, with killing Uriah, uh, and, and so forth. But Hezekiah is one that we also need to pay attention to because with Hezekiah, you have somebody 
who is uh, counting on uh, power defined the way that the outside world defines it. So what Hezekiah was counting on is his wealth and his visible power and uh, all of these geopolitical decisions. So for him, it's a binary choice. So if I have to, I have to choose between the uh, Assyrians or the Babylonians, the Egyptians or the Assyrians, uh, and so forth, this is the very thing Hezekiah ought to have known about because he's the one that when the Assyrians sent a threatening letter, he spread it before the Lord. He's somebody who saw when the bronze serpent had become an idol, uh, he, he destroyed it. He, he saw in his own life that the power was not in his strength, but in his vulnerability. But in the end here, he goes right along with embracing the values of winning and displaying rather than the way of the cross. And that's, um, that is a constant uh, battle in terms of the integrity of uh, the Word of God that we have been given. So Hezekiah doesn't see this, but what's really horrifying about this account is that Hezekiah says, when Isaiah says, this is going to be taken away from you, uh, all of this is ultimately going to go away, his response is to say, well, good, it's fine. That's a good word from the Lord. And that looks kind of pious when you look at it until you see why, because he says, it's not going to happen in my days. It's going to happen in the days of my children. So everything will be well from me. Now, you think about that for a minute and you think about the way that a lot of the anger that is directed toward religion is precisely at that point that religion is a form of power seeking. And so a lot of the anger that's out there is directed toward people who have seen Christianity as a means to an end to political power, to ego gratification, to abuse, to all of those, uh, all of those sorts of things. And there's a sense in which often the people who are leading the religion at the moment or in charge of the religion don't seem to care about the long-term witness. They don't care about their children, their grandchildren, as long as all is well in my days. So what you see, I think, in, in this song, Losing My Religion, that's me in the spotlight it's not just this sense of, well, I'm a secularized university student and I'm no longer uh, a, a Christian or a professing Christian or whatever I used to be, and I feel the loss of that. I think instead there's a sense of lament, not just that, that this religion isn't believable to them, but that it's been taken away from them because it's seen as a means to an end. I mean, that is horrifying. I mean, and, and you, you look at it and you think uh, there ought to be a sense of compassion from us. I find myself saying, I don't know how many times, I'm glad that I knew Jesus long enough before I saw some of the things that I have seen. 
that go under the name of religion so that I didn't confuse the two. And it used to drive me crazy when it became a a cliche in American evangelicalism. Christianity is about relationship, not about religion. And it used to drive me crazy because I would say, uh, you're, you're taking a perfectly good word that the scripture uses, James 127 and, and elsewhere, uh, religion, and acting as though that's not what Christianity is. And I know what you're trying to say, that it's not, um, it's not the keeping of rules. It's a personal relationship with Jesus. But it, it, the cliche drove me crazy. But now I think I see what people were trying to say with that, which is to say, you can separate the person of Jesus Christ from, not from the church, not talking about this sort of individualized, spiritual, but not religious mentality, but you can separate the person of Jesus Christ from everybody who purports to act in his name. Because you see that confrontation between Jesus and who claim to be acting in his name all throughout the New Testament. And that's something that I think if we as Christians are going to speak to the kind of loss and the kind of anger and the kind of lament in losing my religion, we have to be the people who are bearing witness to that reality. We have to be the sort of people who understand that the anger that some people feel when they look toward religion is not unjustified. Often it's not only justified, it is the exact same sort of anger that Jesus himself expressed in the temple. When Jesus comes into the temple and he sees a lack of integrity, uh, both in terms of that vertical relationship with God, my house is to be a house of prayer and the sense of horizontal Uh, love of neighbor, a house of prayer for all people, but you have made it into a den of thieves. The, The anger that is there, this moment in the temple for Jesus was uh, one of the very reasons that, that he was ultimately sentenced to death because he spoke against the temple. He acted against the temple as one of the charges that consistently came against him. When people saw Jesus acting against the temple, they assumed he was losing his religion in the theological sense because the temple is the presence of God. If he is uh, if he's acting against the temple and then if he's saying, tear down this temple and in three days I will build it up, that means he's losing his religion. He's not one of us. But he wasn't losing his religion that way. He says, the zeal for your house has eaten me up. He was losing his religion in that Southern folk language sense. He'd had it. And he says, if I'm lifted up in my vulnerability and crucifixion, I will draw all people to myself. So there are people who are watching and they're asking, is this just the same old social Darwinism? Is Jesus just a way for you to identify who you are culturally? Is Jesus just a way for you to enact your political opinions or to sell stuff. Is that what Christianity is? And the answer is no, no. But there are a lot of people. Now, there are a lot of people in American culture 
who reject Jesus because they have looked at Jesus and they explicitly find him wanting. We can have that argument with those people. But there are a lot of people who have been driven away from Jesus by money changers. That's the warning here. And Isaiah 39 uh, points to this, repeating what was said here in 2 Kings, and then it moves right into Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40, there's a reason why uh, people that I disagree with call it Deutero-Isaiah, think it's another person. Can't believe that these are written by the same people. And one of the reasons is because it goes so suddenly from this darkness uh, into this, this word of hope. But I think that's all unified. It's all Isaiah. It's all the Spirit of God. Uh, because there's a voice crying in the wilderness that says, when all seems lost in exile and darkness, behold, there is a light that is shining in the darkness. So if you're one of those people who, when you hear the song, Losing My Religion, what you feel is just this gradual moving away from belief, then I would encourage you, go back to the Word of God and look for Jesus there. And if you're the kind of person who finds yourself alienated from the church because you're angry at evil that has been done in the name of Jesus to you or to people you love, if you, if you see a lack of integrity there, then consider whether maybe Jesus is angry too. And maybe you should not run away from him, but you should instead run to him. Because the Jesus that you see is not the mascot for whoever wants to use it. The Jesus you want to see is somebody who is bearing a word from God on his own authority and the authority of his father and who comes into the temple and runs out those who want to use it and use him. That's him in the courtyard. That's him with the lampstand losing his religion in one way, but not in another. Thanks for listening to The Cross and Jukebox. If you haven't yet, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Casts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're listening on a smartphone, just tap or swipe the cover art and you'll find the show notes, including some details that you might have missed. Let me know in the comments what song or songs you would like for us to talk about here on the Russell Moore Podcast on Cross the Jukebox episodes. And I'll do my best uh, to do it. And until next time, onward. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.